Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American Blue Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet. I'm the CEO of Ocean STL Consulting and formerly was the Deputy Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. I was also the Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere, and before that, the Oceanographer of the Navy. We are a monthly offering by the American Shoreline Podcast Network and brought to you by Coastal News Today. The American Blue Economy Podcast brings together leading voices in the ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes-based economies to expand awareness and collaboration, identify positive solutions to address the many challenges to the ocean economy, such as conflicting uses and climate change, and provide thought leadership to support our post-pandemic national recovery. In today's episode, we discuss coastal resilience, how we are going to achieve coastal resilience and how that will contribute to the American blue economy by promoting communities and businesses. Our coasts are subject to a wide range of challenges, including those associated with climate change, which we talked about in October's podcast, tropical storms, pollution, invasive species. Uh, We also have competing uses, as I mentioned, erosion, hypoxia, harmful algal blooms, in addition to all the COVID-caused economic downturn. And so how are we going to address these challenges? Well, we've arranged really a superstar lineup of experts. But before I introduce them, um, let me just kind of set the stage here. Coastal counties in the U.S. are home to 127 million people, and that's increasing. That's 40% of the population. And from 2010 to 2016, for example, the population of shore-adjacent communities along the Gulf of Mexico grew by 24% the fastest of any region in the nation, which averaged about 14.8%. If American coastal counties were an individual country, they would rank third in the world in GDP, surpassed only by the United States and China. How about those numbers? So the prosperity and security of this nation is absolutely dependent upon the safe and prosperous and resilience uh, of our co- of our coasts and our people in our coasts. So, as I mentioned, we, I'm just thrilled and delighted to introduce uh, these incredible experts in this coastal resilience space. And the first on our list is Dr. Robert Twilley. He's the chairman of the board and interim executive director of the Coastal Sustainability Studio and a professor at Louisiana State University. Robert, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. You bet. We also have Ed Levine. Ed is the Managing Director of the Scientific Support and Coordination, LLC, and formerly he was with NOAA's Office of Restoration and Response uh, as a a science and support coordination expert. And uh, he is also now the Vice Chair of the Committee to Revise the Oil in the Sea publication of the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. Ed, great to have you back, shipmate. Thank you, Admiral. Uh, it's great to be here and participate in this dialogue with the other distinguished panelists. I'm really looking forward to answering your questions and being part of the discussion today. Well, indeed. I love your positive attitude as always. And we also have Ms. Pat Montanio. She is the former director of NOAA's NOAA Fisheries Office of Habitat Conservation. I've seen much of your work in the field, Pat. Uh, so nice to reconnect with you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I look forward to the discussion. All right. We also have Dr. Candace Boyd. She is the Deputy Division Director at the National Science Foundation, and formerly she was the Acting Director of NOAA Research's Weather Program Office. Candace, you're an expert in this field. Can't wait to hear all that you can contribute. Uh, thank you for joining us. 
Admiral, I'm happy to be here. I'm looking forward to the discussion. All right. And rounding out this great lineup, we have Dr. Russell Callender, another former shipmate of mine at NOAA. He was the assistant administrator uh, and head of the National Ocean Service, and currently he is the director of Washington Sea Grant. Russell, thank you for being here. Thanks, Admiral. I'm really uh, looking forward to the conversation today and reconnecting with you and my other colleagues here. Right on. Well, let's get to it. And I wanted to start with Robert Twilley. Louisiana is really at the front lines of, of coastal threats and is sort of the epicenter of coastal resilience activity. So could you talk to us a little bit about your studio at LSU and what you, what you are accomplishing in this coastal resilience space? Well, you know, our, our studio actually takes uh, its roots uh, from a post-Hurricane uh, Katrina and Rita uh, activities. Uh, so it and, and those activities are actually focused on you know, trying to frame this coastal resilience uh, landscape. After the hurricanes of 2005, uh, we started a rebuilding process and, and uh, there was a regional planning effort. Peter Calthorpe from Berkeley, California came over and, and worked with us to think about what the future coast would look like. And, and that really uh, sparked a, a, a booklet called Louisiana Speaks. But it made us think at LSU, you know, we got to find a better way to combine our talents of architects and engineers and scientists to develop this systems approach around the word design. And um, and you'll notice we we actually use the word studio and not you know research center or uh, or a laboratory. And and that was purpose on purpose. It, and the idea was to put a problem on the table and get these disciplines to sit around that table and tackle, you know, methodologies, differences in language, differences in the way we use terms uh, so that we could, you know, start working on solutions. And, and, and again, from the very beginning, it was all about this, this concept of what does the design of resilience look like? And so it's been a little over 10 years now. Uh, we're now located on the water campus here. Uh, at LSU, and it's been a it's been a lot of fun. Our students, uh, you know, come from different disciplines. They work on different all these different problems. But the other thing about the studio that's so important is we we make sure we get out to the communities. Uh, and so it's a collaborative effort. We're engaged with our partners, uh, industry, and uh, our leaders uh, in our small communities along the coast. And and it's trying to connect uh, ecosystem services back to back to uh, what uh, we see as a future of coastal Louisiana. That's terrific, Robert. I visited you there, and I've seen firsthand your work and your partners and your team, and uh, incredibly terrific and important work. And also, uh, the systems approach is very fascinating, and we could really spend a whole episode on that. But what I thought I think is I appreciate especially is your connection to communities. And interestingly, you know, you talked about Katrina and, and the, there's a really important component here of resilience and that's weather forecasting and preparedness. And Dr. Candace Boyd at NSF, formerly with NOAA's Weather Program Office, knows this really well. And I think, you know, what I'd like to ask you about, Candace, is how the role of social science and communicating forecasts and preparedness activities, how that's grown. Uh, can you say a little bit about that? Sure. So, Social science is the intersection of people and society. And so sometimes it's referred to as social science, social justice, or even social equity. So social science can focus on human behavior 
and it can be affected by several factors, um, economic factors, political factors, cultural factors, and even environmental factors. And then likewise, people also help shape those forces as well. So when it comes to social science, weather and climate are not only influenced by people, but also by researchers as well as operational specialists. So there is a need to have this open dialogue to enhance social science, and we need to have an open dialogue between the research community and the operational community. So this this concept is called R2O or O2R, so research to operations or operations to research. So it's one way to drive social science and help us make informed decisions and then provide that information to decision makers as well. Real, well said, Candice. Thank you. And I, I just really enjoyed seeing those efforts under your leadership uh, just blossom. Um, and actually related to that, I also, when I visited uh, your people and work, Pat Montanio, formerly of NOAA's Office of Habitat Conservation, I also saw that close community connection. You know, for example, the coral reef restoration work in Puerto Rico or up at Muskegon, the uh, Martian and wetland restoration work. Um, can you comment a little bit about some of your partners in the communities and other type of activities that you supported that relate to coastal resilience, Pat? Absolutely. Um, you know, the strong connection to the community is really one of the essential elements because we are working in the communities. So um, that becomes the core. And I think it's about uh, learning from the communities what they're interested in, what their goals are, and what drives them and coupling that with the activities that the federal government, being from the federal government and the state are interested in, in order to um, you know, make projects uh, work together to solve multiple diverse issues. Right, right. And I actually, I saw that firsthand. It was my one of my very first trips up in the, the Pacific Northwest, Pat. And I met with one of your people named Jen Steger, and who's just, I maintain a relationship with, and I, I'm actually working with her brother. And it was about restoring an estuary up, up there when working with um, one of the tribes. And um, so Russell, Russell uh, Callender uh, with Washington Sea Grant, um, you're probably working these issues every day. Uh, you know, could you share some of uh, what Washington State's coastal resilience activities and, and their inter, inter exchanges with the communities are about? Yeah, absolutely, Tim. Uh, so first, just a, a brief blurb about Sea Grant. We're a, a network of research, education, and outreach professionals who work in partnership with universities, communities, and other stakeholders. And we're one of, here at Washington Sea Grant, we're one of 34 state programs nationally. And you know what I've seen here in Washington is that coastal resilience uh, at the local level, and I've also seen it sort of nationally, is it's limited by capacity constraints um, at the local and state levels. And what this ends up leading to is cycles of emergency response efforts that might get communities through a particular disaster or storm event as they occur, but don't really provide the capacity to prepare them for the future. And here in Washington, we're focused on the challenges of things like sea level rise, uh, major coastal storms, coastal erosion, coastal flooding, and episodic events like tsunamis that pose a risk both to the coast and to Puget Sound communities. And all of the work that we do is in partnership. It's not anything that Seagrant does alone. And we focus on work that spans the gamut from uh, local direct project development 
to technical assistance, to applied science that's coupled with community engagement, which is what we heard about uh, uh, already in the podcast. And we, we take this approach to the community engagement so that results from uh, the scientific community aren't buried in the literature, but are translated for integration into community planning as efficiently and effectively as we can. We're really trying to work to broaden the participation of coastal communities, including tribes and historically underrepresented groups in what we call the co-production of research. That's research that's defined and executed together so that communities can be better adapted or can better adapt to climate change impacts. A little bit, little bit deeper, um, we're, there's been a recent study by a group called the Ruckels House Center that recommended that Washington establish a coastwide resilience initiative to enhance and integrate efforts across state agencies. And in Washington Sea Grant, we're, we're deeply into that. And we're doing a lot of that work in partners, partnership with uh, folks in the Department of Ecology, which is a state agency here that manages the coastal zone uh, uh, project for, for Washington. And some of the work that we're doing is to work with communities on the coast to identify potential resilience projects, to help them scope these projects, um, and then help communities find the funds and other resources to get the work done. And a lot of the projects are already envisioned by those residents on the coast, but they need that extra boost to get it from the shelf to the shore, so to speak. Uh, and working with state agencies like Ecology uh, helps to provide some of that capacity. Interesting. Great, Russell. Wow, that's a lot there. And I, and I love what you're doing. And I love that Sea Grant is showing leadership in this area. Uh, you know, it, what, what you mentioned early on was about disaster response. And I know people like Robert and Louisiana are, are pretty focused on hurricanes and storms. But, uh, you know, I brought in Ed Levine because of his expertise in oil spill response, which I think is a really significant and often, I think, not maybe overlooked aspect of coastal resilience. Ed uh, received, when he retired in 2020, the Dis NOAA Distinguished Career Award, and much of that was because of his leadership during a Deepwater Horizon response. And so, Ed, uh, tell us about that work you've done and, and uh, anything you want to share about what you're working with with the National Academies on, on oil spills. Um, so I guess I'll start uh, with uh, just a quick summary on the National Academy's work. Uh, the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and medicine, we're updating a report that's been written, uh, well, three other times now in the last 40 years. Um, this, this revision updates the 2002 report, and we, we are working to identify new data and knowledge on the inputs, fates, and effects of oil in the marine environment, focusing on North America. Uh, the report hopefully will be completed by this spring. And uh, and until the report's done, I can't really say much more due to the uh, the Academy's principles on this discussing unpublished work yet. So um, kind of stand by till the spring, and there'll be a lot more to be said on that. Um, and with respect to the uh, scientific support coordinator role, uh, NOAA's Office of um, Response and Restoration, which is in the uh, National Ocean Sciences uh, section, has the Emergency Response Division, which contains the Scientific Support Coordinator Program. And uh, the best way I describe the work that we did, uh, so, so my mother understood it when I started uh, back 33 years ago, was we're kind of the, uh, the Mr. Spock to, to the Captain Kirk using a uh, Star Trek analogy. So we're 
science advisors to the Coast Guard for preparedness, training, and response for oil spills, chemical releases, biological and radiological threats, marine debris, sewage, designated national security events, such as the, the Pope's visit or Republican National Convention, the Super Bowl, and then law enforcement activities and many, many other aspects that the, the Coast Guard uh, requests our, our work with. Um, I, I worked in New York City, but uh, responded as needed nationally and internationally at the request of other countries through our State Department. And recently, the uh, role of a, a disaster preparedness coordinator working with ORNR's disaster preparedness program and, and FEMA has been added to that suite of um, responsibilities. Well, Ed, your work has so impressed me, and it's really broad, and people, again, don't think that's the top of the list for coastal resilience, but I, I see it in just a huge role, not only with spills, but with marine debris, as you mentioned. You know, people don't want to go and restore and support uh, trashy beaches. So it's a, it's a core component, I think, needs more attention. Um, and, that, and interestingly, you also bring up that your key partnership with the Coast Guard in these events, NOAA's, NOAA's partnership as well as the state's. And so as we have discussions about coastal resilience, I think it's important to know that the, the Coast Guard's a big player too. Uh, it's just not the environmental agencies at the federal and state levels. So very good points there. Um, I'd like to go back to, to Russell Callender um, from his time with the National Ocean Service overseeing your work, Ed, and, um, and the, those partnerships, again, thinking about maybe those that aren't, aren't often thought about, I'm curious if you worked with the Navy in any coastal resilience activities like, like the coastal zone management work that naval bases have to um, uh, uh, abide by. Uh, is there anything you might be able to share about that? Yeah, this is sort of having to dredge back a little bit. Uh, some of the conversations I had with the Navy uh, were around the, uh, the flooding and challenges that Norfolk has seen. And the naval base there is, uh, I believe it's the largest naval base in the world. Uh, and it's under severe threat uh, from uh, coastal flooding that's tidally driven, as well as from uh, the challenges of sea level rise that's exacerbated by subsidence in the area. And, you know, what I, what I saw there with the Navy base and having some of those conversations is the Navy was really being incredibly uh, thoughtful about positioning itself to deal with the challenges of sea level rise. But the city uh, infrastructure around there wasn't keeping up with that forward-looking thinking. So the Navy could do all its work to ensure that uh, people could work on the base, that the docks were the right height, et cetera, yet people couldn't get to work in many cases. So uh, it's a challenge that shows that it's, you know, it's it's really an all hands on deck kind of effort uh, where one group can't be a forward looking group if it's the community that it lives and works with is not keeping up. And so I think that was an important lesson, uh, both for me as, as an NOS uh, leader, as well as an uh, important lesson for the Navy. Well, indeed, Russell, and that was kind of a loaded question because, you know, uh, that some of that Navy high-level support uh, came from me personally when I was the director of Navy's task force climate change. And so when you were getting those requests and the coordinating with Norfolk, I was I was overseeing those efforts and driving some of that policy. But uh, I, again, in, in sort of a non-traditional or non-often thought of partner, but the Navy's heavily invested in coastal resilience issues because that's where most of their, all of their bases are for the most part. But 
Yeah, you know, and on the topic of sea level rise and subsistence, let's go back to Robert Twilley at Louisiana State University. And, and Robert, again, Louisiana is on the front lines here. And um, I, I mean, there's a really interesting um, effort going on that has a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, attention right now. And it's this Mid-Barataria Diversion Project. I would assume you have involvement and at least awareness. Could you comment on all about that effort and as it relates to coastal resilience? Sure. It's a, it's a major uh, keystone project in our coastal master plan, which is a master plan that's been uh, actually initiated after Katrina in 2007 was our first. And every five years, we update this master plan to, to figure out how we can deal with these major issues of wetland loss and, and uh, protection. It's called, and it's, it's headed up by the, actually the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority, which was actually formed by Governor Blanco uh, following Katrina. So one of the key projects, as you just stated, is uh, what's referred to as reconnecting uh, the river uh, back to coastal basins. And, you know, we are a delta. And, and, and so the connectivity between the river and, and the deltaic processes and the del delta habitats is, is uh, so important. And, um, and it's one of the largest. It's, in fact, I, I, I think it's, uh, it, it's one of the few projects where the scale of the design of the project matches the scale of the problem. In fact, it, it's probably one of the few projects in, that's supported by Deepwater Horizon money that actually fundamentally can, can try to do that. Um, it is, you know, again, the, the, the strategy there is to put the sediment of the river back in the basin. And that sediment is very important so that wetlands can build the elevation uh, necessary to keep up with sea level rise and subsidence. And if they don't keep up that elevation, our wetlands drown. And that's why we have one of the highest uh, wetland loss rates uh, actually in the world. And so this idea is to build a, uh, a, a physical structure with gates that will open when the river stage is high and by gravity, that river flows into the basin and floods the wetlands. And, and uh, that is what we use to, one of our strategies to keep those wetlands intact. Now, one key point I like to make about that project when you ask me, well, what, what are my thoughts? Uh, you know, it's, it's design is very complicated. We have 50 years of wetland loss. So if you, if you operate it to try to make up for 50 years of cumulative impacts, you have, you run the risk of actually blowing out the fisheries. You, you change the salinity so much that you lose your seafood industry. And then there are those who say, well, don't, you know, divert, uh, dredge sediment and use that to build wetlands. Well, you know, you can't really do that on a scale that's needed. So we're trying to build a compromise. It's not just, as we said earlier, one solution. You have to have a systems approach. You got to put a lot of tools in the toolbox. And uh, so it's both, you know, dredging, uh, uh, building settlements, create marshes, and then the diversion will maintain that. And, uh, you know, we hope that both of those, uh, you know, can build some solutions to this uh, wetland loss problem in the, in the state. And I think, and it's, my, my final statement is, is that when people want to put solutions one versus the other, you know, if you don't put this tool in the toolbox, um, you know, then you, you're, you're missing a great opportunity. It's how you operate it so that you try to minimize your conflicts or, but also maximize ecosystem, you know, uh, 
building ecosystems that you're trying to achieve. So it's it's a complicated. That's what's going to be very complicated. The operation. For sure, Robert. And yeah, thank you for uh, highlighting and elucidating that to us. You know, I, I've watched this also, and it's really one of the classic blue economy uh, conflict, use, use conflict kind of cases where, as you mentioned, shrimpers and endangered species conservationists and, of course, uh, marine transportation uh, officials and, uh, and and then the communities that depend on a more resilient um, uh, <clears throat> land uh, as that is disappearing beneath them which is highlighted very well in Mike, I think, Tidwell's book, uh, By You Farewell. I be- you've probably read this, I imagine. Oh, yes. In fact, we had Mike. I, I had the pleasure of hosting Mike uh, for our honor student at LSU. And he came and was our plenary speaker. And, and it was great because, you know, uh, I find this when I teach my undergraduate classes as well. Uh, you know, he got up and started talking about a coast that people were saying, you know, farewell. No, it's it's a it's a coast that's uh, disappearing, and and so a lot of the it actually opened up a lot of eye, uh, eyes to the students who are in the class because they live so close to it. Uh, to have some very famous novelist uh, come in and and talk about the problem and to hear their problem talked about on the national scale, you know, it gives them pause. And uh, but they also really uh, they they get this strong commitment to 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 do something, make it different. And so you saw this tremendous enthusiasm uh, as Mike went through. And what was beautiful about that book is Mike just didn't talk about the problem and, and sort of the, the nature, uh, natural aspects. He did it through interviewing people. Mm, that's right. People, through, through the people that he interviewed, it connected. And the people that, they, that he interviewed were the people these students know in their community. So they, it really resonated, and I, and I, and so it was just a great experience. Wonderful point, and good on you for uh, uh, exposing your, your students to that uh, very gifted author. And by you, farewell. I definitely recommend to read for people working in coastal resilience. And uh, thank you, Robert. Um, go, uh, talking about water, it's interesting. So weather disasters, intense hurricanes. Get is gets a lot of the press, but the number one killer in any big event like that is the water, the storm surge. And in fact, I lost my house in Mississippi to 28 feet of storm surge in Hurricane Katrina, so I know this well. And uh, ultimately, though, what I think uh, I'm really proud of Noah's work is in predicting weather and water. And this is something Dr. Candace Boyd uh, was again leading the research part of this program. Um, in NOAA research. And so, Candace, anything you want to share about that component, like the National Water Center and the National Water Model, perhaps? Sure. So um, first, let me say um, I share uh, your challenges uh, as it relates to Hurricane Katrina. I was the on-site meteorologist for 11 days before, during, and after the hurricane's landfall. And I provided around-the-clock forecast to um, Governor Blanco and her executive team. So um, I, I really do feel for so many citizens like yourself who were um, directly or indirectly affected by that storm. Um, so, and let, let me say thank you for your service. The National Weather Service just saves lives every day, and then Candace uh, did that for a time. So I want to thank you for that, and uh, very proud of your work, and we're grateful for it. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I truly enjoyed my time at NOAA. I, I spent 26 years um, at NOAA working in three line offices as well as uh, NOAA headquarters. So it's definitely um, an agency that provides uh, critical information to, to our nation. So um, we are now shifting a little bit to weather and climate and how that relates to coastal resist, re- resilience. So coastal resilience in this space is providing communities with resources and actionable strategies to help them recover or to just bounce back after a disaster, just like we were talking about with Hurricane Katrina. And so we've heard this on the podcast that it's not just hurricanes. Disasters come in a lot of different forms, Um, floods, erosion, hurricanes, oil spills, and even human-caused disasters. So I know at the beginning of the podcast, you provided some interesting uh, statistics. Let me provide one more for you. So from 1980 to 2020, the United States had 285 weather and climate disasters where the overall damage cost reached or exceeded one billion, and that's billion with a B. <laughs> so the majority majority of these disasters actually occurred either along the coastline or within one hour of a coastline. So that's one of the reasons why we need to understand this connection um, between weather, between climate, and between coastal resilience. So the fact is that we have extreme weather events. And they are exasperated by climate change, and we are seeing more and more of them. So simply put, we're having more extreme weather events, and the weather events are increasing in their impact and their damaging impact. So it is really important for us to understand how weather and climate predictions can inform decision makers. So as I said before, we're seeing advancements in research, R2O and O2R, to make weather products more timely, more accurate, and more precise. But what's even more exciting is the advancement in communication tools, because now we're able to relay information um, faster or even in near real time. Um, We are also able to relay the information in an easy to understand format. And then likewise, in a variety of communication platforms. And so this combination of advanced scientific information and advanced information uh, delivery technology, this combination really can help us advance our awareness and our um, ability to address coastal resilience. Right on. Exactly. Great to hear the statistics and the examples. And in fact, a good good example from my work, I have a client that is called tomorrow.io and they have a super slick basically weather intelligence platform that allows you whatever you're doing if you're if you're uh, aviation transportation or if you're an uber driver for example both clients uh, of this company provides detailed route planning on what the weather and impacts will be impacts and insights uh, along the route and that's the kind of services now that are being increasingly available to people you know, on their cell phones. So we're powered by data and, and, and world-class models from, from NOAA. Uh, thank you, Candice. You know, interestingly, in this world of water and weather prediction, um, those are very important tools for Ed Levine to do his job, and that is in, in spill response, marine debris response, and again, protecting ecosystems and ecosystem services on the coast. And so, Ed, I, I know you've been involved in some of that uh, research to advance prediction. And, and I think um, 
you have to help me with the right term in terms of the uh, forecasting a movement and dispersal of spills, but uh, anything to share about that work that you've done? Sure. Um, so starting with kind of just the spill response and coastal resilience, um, you know, the, the first thing we do is that, that there's an understanding that natural resources such as mangroves, marshes, coral reefs, subaquatic vegetation, act as natural barriers to buffer uh, damage from storm events. So um, so before there's an incident, there's definitely preparation activities, planning and training. Uh, and then we have, uh, you know, the potential response and transition to a recovery. So working with the Coast Guard, NOAA prepares maps of environmentally sensitive areas and plans how to respond in those areas. Uh, we also... Uh, working prior to storm events with other divisions in NOAA, such as National Weather Service and the Center for Operational Oceanographic Products and Services, we help predict the impact locations and storm surge effects and bring, bring this information to the decision makers, specifically in uh, you know the case with the SSCs, the, the Coast Guard Federal Onsing Coordinator and Captain of the Ports. Um, then post-impact, we can work with the uh, NOAA's Office of Marine and Aviation Operations, doing aerial survey, using aerial surveillance imagery and uh, computer trajectories and, and artificial intelligence to identify potential sources of uh, pollution. And then working with the Coast Guard and uh, Army Corps of Engineers, we work to safely remove hazards in an ecologically responsible manner. Uh, for example, removing vessels and oil and chemicals from coral reefs without causing any additional harm to the reef systems. And in, in specific, some examples we have uh, back in 2017, the hurricane season, we had Har Harvey, Irma, and Maria causing extensive damage in the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean. Uh, and for the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico, it was just devastating. So NOAA's uh, National Ocean Service completed uh, a collection of aerial imagery for the impacted area and surveying the ports for potential navigation hazards, and ORNR had science support teams helping to identify, assess, and safely remove vessels that were damaged or grounded. These teams comprised uh, scientific support coordinators, marine debris personnel, hazardous material specialists, and also information managers. Their goal was then to identify the thousands of vessels that the storm had damaged, determine if they are pollution threats or a threat to sensitive habitats, such as corals and mangroves, and then advise the U.S. Coast Guard which vessels should be prioritized for removal. Uh, luckily, neither Irma nor Maria caused many uh, large-scale pollution events, but the thousands of damaged vessels left behind by these storms could could have a very large cumulative effect in the ecosystem. Some vessels were pushed into mangrove forests or onto coral reefs, causing damage to these extremely sensitive, important ecosystems. Uh, some of the vessels were sunk in waters and were hazards for navigation or a pollution threat. Finding these vessels and assessing which ones posed the largest threat to the environment was critical to mitigating further insults to these coastal communities and opening other ports to their for their economic values, and just as was previously stated for Louisiana, uh, an, another great example is the over eight billion dollars that was recovered from the BP's uh, natural resource damage assessment um, that during the uh, in the in, uh, post Deepwater Horizon incident. 
uh, and this money, is, as stated, a lot of it is going to building greater environmental benefits through restoration activities, which will include uh, resilience components. Well, Ed, that's terrific. Uh, one of the things I key keyed on is your use of technology. And uh, one of your former colleagues, Dr. Lisa DePinto, was using aerial drones to map spills and their trajectories. So I, I'm really excited about that, too. And, uh, and you mentioned artificial intelligence, which, which is another being applied for weather and water modeling and prediction. You know, um, now you, uh, your work there in protecting ecosystems and restoring them, I found interesting, you were in one line office, the National Ocean Service, where Pat Montano was in NOAA Fisheries, and she did much of the same thing in terms of restoring habitat, her Office of Habitat Conservation, which I just loved uh, in terms of the people and their passion and the work they do. And, and Pat, you have a really signature, interesting signature program called HAD, and when you were there, Habitat Focus Area. And I've seen several of them in Hawaii, uh, I think uh, Puerto Rico, um, maybe Louisiana and Washington and, and also uh, Michigan. And I'm curious, could you talk to our audience a little bit about that program as it relates to coastal resilience? Yeah, but uh, first I'd like to step back a little because Candace mentioned that um, climate and weather hazards take a variety of forms. And um, so do um, resilience activities. Um, so the program that I led, the Office of Habitat, you know, protects and restores habitat to sustain fisheries and recover endangered species, but also to promote the resilience of coastal communities. And that takes so many different forms in different areas and regions. So it's really regional dependent. And that's where the habitat focus areas, I think, are important because they say, what are the problems and issues in that particular location and how can we help improve them? Um, so, you know, if you look nationally, um, resilience activities can be removing small dams in New England that are providing um, you know, barriers to fish passage, but they're also flooding the town and providing a safety hazard. So removing those dams are, are resilience. Um, we, we heard about wetlands. Um, wetlands can provide significant um, you know, flood protection. And in certain areas, that's an important activity. Um, coral reefs, you mentioned, and oyster reefs provide protection and barriers from storm. And so a healthy coral reef can reduce wave impacts by 97%. Um, you know, so in other areas, um, you know, creating living more natural shorelines can effectively stabilize um, and prevent erosion and buffer the shorelines from waves. So you mentioned the habitat focus areas. Those are areas around the country where we would look at what does the what problems are faced by the community. Is it, um, you know, decrease in fish stocks? Is it um, flooding? Is it um, other types of impacts that they're concerned about? And then how can we partner? And Russell, you know, who's emphasizing the partnership aspect of everything um, being done, how can we partner to uh, better address the multiple um, types of issues that are being faced by communities? So um, I'd like to share an example. It's not a habitat focus area, but it's a habitat focus like area, um, if I could, um, in landscape scale. And that's one in the Southern Flow Corridor of Oregon. So this project is a landscape floodplain restoration project in Tillamook Bay, Oregon. And in this area, there were 
very diverse interests uh, and very diverse issues in the area. The area has extensive dairy farming and agriculture, and the farmers there were very, very passionate about no net loss of farmland. And that was partly in reaction to the policy at the time of no net loss of wetlands. So there was already a dynamic of us, you know, you versus me or us versus them. Uh, but the town was experiencing significant flooding um, and NOAA Fisheries was interested in the area because of it improving the habitat for Oregon Coast coho, which is a threatened species under the Endangered Species Act. So you had very, very diverse goals and interests in the area that there was not a shared, shared vision. Uh, but the county stepped up and um, developed a plan that would address all these diverse goals. And so by conducting landscape scale um, restoration, we removed old levees and tide gates and reconducted the tidal wetlands that resulted in a creation of a flow corridor that allowed the flooding floodwaters to move freely away from the town. Um, and by reducing the flooding, on the farmlands, the land became more productive. So even though the farmers, you know, some farmland had to be converted to wetland, the net result was an increase in productive farmland. So they were happy. Um, and by allowing the natural processes to resume in the marshes and the forested wetlands, um, we're improving the habitat for endangered coho salmon. So it is a win-win-win situation and uh, Another example of like the habitat focus areas of how if by working together and partnering together, we can achieve more and uh, address multiple goals at the same time. And um, that really only happened through partnerships with the county, with the state, with FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, contributed funds as well as NOAA and Fish and Wildlife Service, um, the Tillamook Estuary Partnership, local organizations, private organizations. Um, and each of the funding sources and each of the partners had different goals, different constraints, yet were brought together, you know, for, on this project to achieve something uh, really significant. Gosh, Pat, I, I love that story. That is exactly what we're working to highlight in this podcast. And that is these win, win, win outcomes that, that are achievable. Uh, you know, the, some of these spaces we talk about like wind and fish and marine transportation and Navy training and national security, yeah, finding those win, win, win Outcomes is not easy, but uh, but by sharing stories of when they occur, we're hoping to foster more. Beautifully said. Thank you so much. And seizing on your topic of coral reefs, I got to go back to Dr. Russell Callender. C Russell uh, had a job as the director of Na the NOAA's National Ocean Service, uh, which was chairing the U.S. United States Coral Reef Task Force, which... When he, uh, when I, I took the job over from him after a, a, a time, uh, and it was one of my favorite jobs. I'm actually down in Florida right now working with a NOAA Coral Reef Conservation Program partner called Forest Blue, which rehabilitates our oceans and coral reefs and special operations veterans. But that's another story. And and Russell, um, can you elaborate a bit on coral reefs and how they contribute to coastal resilience? Uh, ab absolutely, Admiral. But first, I just want to state for the record how uh, upset I was when you booted me out of that job uh, <laughs> as acting co-chair of the Coral Reef Task Force, because that was an amazing job with working with amazing people. Um, 
Let me and, and I got a lot of scuba diving out of that job. I'll tell you that. <laughs> there you go. Uh, let, me, let me just give, by way of an example, point to uh, a series of recent studies that were conducted by NOAA scientists uh, and partners with the United States Geological Survey and University of California, Santa Cruz, where they quantified flood protection benefits of coral reefs in Florida and the Virgin Islands. Uh, in 2017, uh, reefs in Florida and, and uh, Puerto Rico were damaged by storm surge and waves from hurricanes Irma and Maria. And so immediately following those hurricanes, uh, NOAA and partners went, out, partners went out to survey the damage to the reefs. And using this information, they tried to quantify the increased flood risk uh, to people and property of Florida and Puerto Rico because of the damage to these reefs. And what they found was that uh, storm damage to the reefs was found to increase flood risk impacts by more than $180 million annually. They made some projections that by 2100, as the size of the 100-year floodplain is projected to increase in those areas, flood risk impacts will increase by a billion every year from reef loss alone. They also showed that coral reef restoration across Florida and Puerto Rico could prevent over $270 million annually in economic damages from flooding and identified locations where reef restoration would provide the greatest benefit. So, I mean, this is just a classic example of a, of partnerships, bringing these variety of scientists together, uh, bringing in science that also includes uh, uh, the social sciences in, into thinking about what are the impacts? How do we quantify those impacts? How do we quantify the risks? Uh, and it's just, a, I think, a good example of the kind of challenges that we're going to be facing in reef environments around the world. Absolutely, Russell. Really, you covered a lot of great territory there. And yeah, those economic impacts are extraordinary. And I think when I was uh, in that job you mentioned, I remember talking about the economic value of Florida's coral reef system. And I believe the number annually is on the order of $8 billion when you combine the, the flood prevention, as well as the tourism, as well as the fisheries uh, habitat support. And uh, really significant. That's why I, I and I just love to be underwater. So <laughs> that's why coral comes up a lot in our discussions. Um, and for our audience, you know, we've had some amazing guests on our series. And uh, as I have this kind of round robin panel discussion format, um, moving into year two in 2022, um, you'll be happy to know that I'll be inviting individuals back for more extended one on one discussions because uh, every one of our members have been terrific and we could spend the entire episode on any given one. So I will apologize to everybody for really just not giving you a fair, your, your fair share of time knowing your expertise and knowledge, but, but there's next year. And so um, for those who are interested, I would love to have you back. So we're about ending our time here together. And I wanted to give everyone a, a chance to share any final words or thoughts about coastal resilience and what they're doing and what our audience needs to know. And let me go back to Robert, Dr. Robert Twilley with uh, Louisiana State University's Coastal Sustainability Studio. Uh, Robert, anything final to share with our listeners? Well, you know, I, I, this week it uh, was announced uh, as, 
in preparing for this podcast, and and uh, it, the newspaper article came out that uh, gave us a number of what the uh, uh, insurance claims for the 2020 hurricane season, uh, which, as you know, was pretty active uh, here in Louisiana with three major hurricanes, and and uh, uh, we actually got into the Greek letters uh, in naming hurricanes, and it was nine about ten billion dollars. And I guess my thought is, is that, you know, there, the, the connections between coastal resilience and blue economy, uh, you know, a lot of it is this insurability. You know, what we do, uh, how we protect our economies, our industries that rely on the coast, our ports, and, and uh, for us down here, you know, moving oil and gas uh, and finding the workforce, safe workforce. I mean, these, these events, such as we had last year, and we had Hurricane Ida this year, they calibrate what is the reality of what we're talking about here today, and and it's a and that number ten billion that's that's not, doesn't include uh, the national flood insurance program and and you know a lot of claims that for the uninsured, so it's a it's a big deal and and it's something that uh, we need to you know put a lot of effort into it, which I'm glad to see we are, and and because it does it has strong economic impacts. Well said. Absolutely true. And that's just huge numbers, uh, like you said. And I think, yeah, that's another that we can talk a, a whole other episode about uh, the insurance industry. I'm really kind of interested in parametric insurance personally, but we'll do we'll go there later, Robert. Thank you so much. Um, now, also, let's go to uh, Ed Levine and uh, you, anything that you care to finish off with, whether it be oil spills your, your science and support and coordination job at NOAA or uh, what you're working on now with the National Academies. So um, well, I'll start again, Admiral, thanking you for the opportunity to participate. This was wonderful, great hearing uh, past colleagues' uh, voices again and uh, kind of catching up for a little bit, hearing how everybody's doing. Um, I guess a couple of quick thoughts. Um, you know, uh, I, I have been working my, my own uh, company doing a little bit of consulting work uh, with um, mapping and oil spill response strategies. But also uh, recently I've teamed up with folks from Maritima, the Teachman Group, and the International Spill Control Organization working on implementing environmental and social justice government principles into response, salvage, and restoration activities. So hopefully uh, that'll continue and we'll get some momentum uh, both on the national and international uh, stage to in, in, incorporate these important principles. Um, the other thing, you know, as a retired ORNR person, um, it's a great pleasure to talk about the great work that they, they have done and are continuing to do in preparing for future emergency response operations, both from anthropogenic and natural disasters, and looking at it in two timescales, uh, responses from inundation to current storm events, and also future planning for anticipated sea level rise issues uh, to help create cleaner and greener infrastructures for more resilient future coasts. Great, great. Thanks so much, Ed. I really am so thankful for you to uh, come back and, uh, and join us for this. And in fact, on this topic of uh, environmental justice and, and getting more representation by underrepresented communities, I know that Dr. Candace Boyd currently at NSF did a great deal of very good work when she was at NOAA leading our diversity and inclusion efforts. So Candace, 
anything on the topic of coastal resilience or that in terms of environmental justice that you might want to uh, conclude with? Um, sure. So in the federal government, DEIA is at the forefront, and that stands for diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. So not only do we need to look at coastal resilience through so many lenses, but we also need to think about what the future looks like. And that is building a robust workforce that represents the communities that we serve. So especially when it comes to coastal communities, there is a dire need to build a workforce that includes underrepresented communities, such as minorities, veterans, um, people with learning, physical, and developmental um, um, capabilities. And there's probably a lot more that I'm not thinking about off the top of my head. So in closing, I think I just want to say again, thank you. These are the type of conversations that we, we need to bring together the biggest and brightest minds to help us understand the intersectionality of coastal communities, resilience, um, protecting and restoring our natural resources, and then likewise to strengthen the local capacity for climate resilience and coastal um, uh, adaptation as, as well. And so if I leave you with anything, it's that we need stakeholders from these groups to have a seat at the table. And we need to be a part of this conversation so we can help the local communities prepare to provide them with resources and then likewise to help them um, bounce back and repair after any type of extreme weather or climate related event. So thank you again for the opportunity. This has been wonderful. Oh, absolutely, Candace. Excellent and so well said. Uh, you know, I have to uh, um, mention that the AR accessibility aspect of that is something that I really was so glad that was included because in the D, E, I, and A discussion, uh, I have a personal connection to the accessibility or people with disabilities and that uh, my last name, Gallaudet, I'm the ancestor of the founder of the nation's first university for the deaf. And so all good. And again, we'll have another episode of our podcast focused on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility as it relates to the blue economy um, in about two months. And so, good. All right. Well, hey, what about uh, Pat Montano, uh, with, formerly with NOAA's Office of Habitat um, Conservation? Uh, thanks for joining us as well. Any final thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, I have um, two. Um, we talked a lot about, um, you know, how wetlands and other you know, habitat features can protect communities from storms. And after Hurricane Sandy, uh, the study showed that the intact coastal wetlands prevented um, $625 million in flood damages. And this is a significant fact, but what is difficult is cost avoidance is really hard to convey and get people excited about. They, they, if they see floodwaters on their land, they're going to they're gonna be motivated to act. But if they don't see flooding, they're not as motivated. So I think the social aspects of, you know, how do we convey to the public that the future um, outlook is not based on what the past has been, that the environment is changing, um, you know, is going to be, I think, a challenge into the future. So I think that's a really important point. But 
the final thing I want to convey to um, the listeners is that I, I think we need to all listen more. I think we need to try to under, understand each other and what our viewpoints are and ask questions to learn rather than to change minds. Um, you know, you know, when I started my career in, in government, I used to think the most important first thing we should do is come to an agreement on what our common goal is, and then we can all work together towards that goal. Um, I now believe that isn't always necessary. We need to understand and respect each other. And, and through that, we may find that our goals may be very different, but they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, we may be able to find that common ground where we can work together and achieve different goals together. Um, so it, it really, I think the example with the uh, Southern Flow Corridor Project shows that, that how we can work together and support and not always agree on everything, but still work together to achieve some great things. And I, and I do want to thank you as well, Admiral, for this podcast series, because we need to reject the, um, the discussion about the false choice between the environment or the economy. And we really need to start talking about how we support communities, how we build the economy, and how we conserve the environment for everyone. Wonderful, Pat. That was so well said. And I, as, I, as I said before, a win, win, win. That's win, what we're win, about. Win. Absolutely. Yes. That's great. Thank you so much. And last but certainly not least, uh, Dr. Russell Callender with Washington Sea Grant. Uh, Russell, again, thank you for taking time to join us. I loved hearing your insights as well as everybody's. Um, any last thoughts for our listeners? Thanks, Admiral. I, I really appreciated the conversation, and it's uh, been really uh, thought-provoking uh, from my perspective, and I've appreciated the, uh, the comments from all the panelists and, and from you as well. And I, I guess my, my final thoughts are to step back a little bit. And I, I see that there's uh, a lot of opportunities coming up uh, as described in the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the potential of funding in the reconciliation bill. And I, I see an opportunity for potentially once in a lifetime or once in a generation transformational change to support coastal resilience at the community level and ecosystem protection across many sectors. And I, I've also mentioned the value of partnerships and heard, heard that from everybody else over and over. Uh, I really appreciate Pat's comments about listening more. And I guess my biggest concern over the next few years is that we as a community trying to advance coastal resilience will struggle to meet this opportunity that we will have for this once in a generation investment. And our efforts are going to be poorly coordinated and or siloed. And I guess my biggest hope is that the large federal investments will stimulate effective partnerships at the federal, state, and local levels that put aside conflicts over turf and funding, but instead focus on what truly matters. And that's the health and vitality of our coastal communities, ecosystems, and economies. Gosh, what a great way to conclude this episode, Russell. You nailed it. That was like you know a three-pointer at the buzzer. So thank you so much. And uh, you have a, you've always had a great way of doing that, by the way. But for our audience, you know, when I was the acting administrator and Russell was leading the National Ocean Service, a lot of people talked a lot. But Russell was one of those people, still is obviously, who kind of would size it all in and say the most with the least words. And everybody would kind of pause and go, hmm, mm-hmm. And you've done it again brilliantly, Russell. So thank you so much. Well. Uh, I want to thank you all. You just did such a terrific job, and this was really a lot of fun as well. 
And this is our latest journey of the American Blue Economy podcast. And we explored coastal resilience and its implications for the blue economy. And I just want to thank our sponsors at the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News today uh, for allowing us to put on this great production. Please join us for our December episode of the American Blue Economy podcast, where we focus on blue STEM education and workforce development, something that was brought up today. This is your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. Thank you for joining us, shipmates. I look forward to getting underway with you next time.